over the last month, we've talked about some things. If you haven't written them down, you can jot them down. Just a reminder, as we kind of look back, we talked about turning when into now. Uh, we've talked about turning intentions into actions. We've talked about a couple different kinds of desperation, right? Desperation that leads us to frustration or desperation that leads us to obedience. Um, and a couple of things that we talked about with that, um, Galen was here and really challenged us to live a lifestyle um, that is about reaching out to, uh, to those around us. If you remember the line, and I thought this was a great line, if you didn't write it down, write this down. You don't have to remember this, but write this down. Um, and that is our vocation is our job, right? Our, our career or our, 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 voc- wait a minute. our vocation is our calling, which is how we reach people for Christ. Our job is how we get paid to do it. Right? So in our workplaces, we're called to be missionaries. And so Galen shared that with us. And then last week, uh, we talked about uh, what it costs to follow Jesus. And it was pretty quiet in here at some times last week. Um, and I think, and as I know as it hit me, that I know that it, I know that it hit a lot of us uh, in, in a way that I think uh, was powerful. And so, uh, Elizabeth, it is so good. Bye, Elizabeth. I know. She wants me to... She's the only person that likes to hear me sing. It's the weirdest thing. She really... She really they, they told me that like at home when she starts crying, they turn on our live feeds and she quiets right now. It is the weirdest... It is the weirdest thing. And she goes to sleep just like y'all do when I preach. So there you go. Um, anyway, so last week we talked about Jesus requiring supreme love, right? We unpacked uh, Luke 14 and we're going to just read back through this. So Luke 14, 26 through 34, or 35, I'm sorry, let's, uh, let's read this together. If, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down, estimate the cost, to see if you have enough money to complete it? Anybody ever got halfway through a project and went, wow, this is getting really expensive, right? Because we didn't sit down and count the cost. Been there, done that. Because um, I, I always forget. Maybe you're like me. You forget to measure, measure twice and cut once. I usually measure once and cut two or three times. Um, it doesn't work out very well. So anyway, for if you lay the foundation, you're not able to finish it. Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish, parentheses, moron. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation, while the other is still a long way off, will ask him for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And so we unpacked this, uh, this supreme love that God requires of us last week. And we aren't going to be here very long because we're going to finish last week's message and we're going to get out of here so you can get ready for the picnic. But I think there's a couple of really poignant things here um, that, we, that we can dig out and, and kind of grab from, from the rest of this. If you remember, we finished uh, with the John Bunyan quote last week uh, talking about who, who, wrote, um, who wrote the book, um, Pilgrim's Progress, and, uh, and, and how he... Um, really spent time in jail because he shared the gospel and how he had a blind daughter at home, right? If you remember, we, we kind of read this story of him last week. If you didn't hear it, you can jump on iTunes and go back and listen to last week's message. But what we came down to is that Jesus requires a superior love. And the question that we asked at the end of the service is, does he have it from you? Does he have it from me? Does he have 
what it costs us to be called his disciple. He says it requires extreme love, but then he goes on and he says it requires exclusive loyalty. Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. Luke 14, 27 says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Give me some things that you think of when you think of the word loyalty. Just just shoot them out. What what are the word loyal? What is what comes to your mind? Unwavering, Unwavering all right. Faithful. Huh? Unconditional. What else? What else comes to your mind with loyal? Promise? Honesty. Trustworthy. Dedicate. Hey, these are all good things. How many of us would call, don't answer this out loud, how many of us would call ourselves loyal? How many of us would say that maybe we're loyal to a fault? If that's possible. Can we be loyal to a fault? I don't know. That's another message. But when I think of loyalty, I think of, I don't know, I think of, you remember, um, you remember Old Yeller, right? You remember the movie Old Yeller and the dog that he shot at the end? Um, sorry if I, sorry if I ruined the plot. <laughs> sorry if I ruined the plot for you. Go back and find it. I'm, I'm sure it's streaming on Disney. But this loyal dog, right, that was loyal to the end, um, that stood by his master, this, this boy, right, that, that um, you know, took one for the team, for, for his master. He was right there, and he was loyal. And I think that's a great word that we don't really probably use enough, is for us to be loyal, for us to be trustworthy, for us to be um, all of those things that we just talked about. Um, how many of you ever heard the term or used it yourself, well, it's just my cross to bear? Have you heard people say that? Have you said it yourself maybe? Well, man, I got polio, but it's just my cross to bear, right? I mean, um, I got mosquito bites all over my, it's just my cross to bear, right? And we kind of make light of that whole statement of it's just my cross to bear. But I give you some context here for what maybe that means and why we maybe shouldn't use it that way. Um, In light of Luke 14, 27, that says, and whoever doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. It requires an exclusive loyalty to carry the cross that Jesus asks us to carry. Um, It's my cross to bear, but it's much more than that. Um, It's not what Jesus was talking about when we we say that phrase uh, from from wherever. I don't even know where we got that phrase, but it's it's kind of just a stupid phrase. Uh, And I'm going to tell you why. Because I want you to go place yourself in that time. If you look, if you were to stand... Um, in, in, the, in the first century A.D., um, even before Jesus, what you begin to realize is the cross didn't symbolize Jesus at that point in history. What the cross symbolized was a death sentence. What the cross symbolized was someone walking through town with a crossbeam tied to their arms in humiliation on their way to death. So when you said the cross in that time... It wasn't anything that we celebrated. Certainly no one wore it around their neck because who wants to be crucified? Um, Certainly no one had crosses hanging on their walls at home celebrating crucifixion, celebrating probably the worst way to die that anyone came up with in history. And the Romans perfected crucifixion. They knew how long they could hang you there. They knew how long someone could survive. And sometimes it was days Sometimes men would hang there 
literally for days, gasping for breath. Not only was it the pain of the nails in your hands and feet, but it was also the stress of pulling yourself up to take a breath because as you hung there, you couldn't breathe. All you could do was exhale. And to take another breath in meant I have to push up on my feet in order to take a breath. And so I'm pushing on this nail that's running through my feet, trying to raise myself up to take a breath and then let it back out. It was the worst possible way you could death. It was, it was, it was a combination of suffocation, of, of even drowning in your own fluids as your lungs would fill up with fluid, as well as just the unholy pain that came with that. So you can imagine thinking back to that time period that no one would have said, well, it's just my cross to bear. Not happening. In fact, if they said cross, it probably was not a good thing in their home if somebody had to say that. And the equivalent today would be for me to say, why don't you take up your lethal injection and follow me? Hey, why don't you pick up your electric chair and come follow me? Because those are the means of our execution. That's how we kill people who kill people, is by lethal injection or the electric chair. Or I think there are a couple states that actually do firing lines again. Um, Kurt's shaking his head yes. That's, I, I, that's insanity. So take up your firing line and come follow me. What? Like, what does that mean? And so you, you have to look contextually back at this. Carrying a cross was a dead man walking. And, and just for a minute... In fact, just for a minute, just, I want you to just close your eyes for a second. I want you to put yourself in that position. You have been sentenced to death, and you have been strapped to a piece of wood. There is no hope for tomorrow. There is no thought for what I'm going to do next week. You're leaving your children, your wife, whatever you may have in this world, and you are hopeless. Your plans mean nothing. Your dreams mean nothing. And in verse 26, he said, hate not only these people, yes, but hate even our own life in order to be his disciple. Can you feel that kind of desperation? Every once in a while, I'll see a, a, like a, a reel or a meme pop up. Usually it's a video thing on Facebook um, or, or, you know, a TikTok reel or something. And it's, and it's a, and it's, it's, this is what death row looks like. Have you, have you seen any of those? It is unsettling. It really is. It, it makes you think of a, of a thing that no one wants to think of, and that's walking to our own death, being, being sentenced to it and to know I'm going to die at this place and time, and it's not of my own accord. It's not of my own choosing. In context of that, Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so when Jesus says to take up your cross and follow in me, he literally says to put everything to death in our lives. Like we talked about last week, we hate our father and our brother and our sister and our mother and our children and our teenagers. Some of you are already there. And we love God in a way that we're so in love with God, we're so committed to God and to Jesus that everything else looks like hate. Every other kind of love looks like hate because we are that committed and that in love with Jesus. It comes before everything. It's the first thought on our mind in the morning. It's the last thought on our mind before we go to bed. It's the first thing we do when we sit down and are blessed with a meal. The first thing that we think about in any situation is Jesus and what would Jesus do in this situation. I kind of miss those wristbands, like those WWJDs. Anybody have those back in the day, right? And they just reminded you what would Jesus do? 
to be reminded constantly by the Holy Spirit because we're walking in that freedom and in that love and in that context in our lives that Jesus is the first thought that comes to our mind in any and every situation. And the only way that can happen is for us to crucify ourselves, to crucify our flesh, to crucify our desires, to crucify everything that we think we need and we own because we own none of it. It's all his. Give it back to him and say, I am crucified with Christ. And because I am, I walk in a freedom that comes through that love. He's the first thing on my mind. He's the first thing in my heart. It's Christ-esteem thinking instead of self-esteem thinking, right? It's Christ-honoring. It's His desire and His plan. It's Christ-centered living. It's my entire identity wrapped up in Jesus. And it changes our perspective and our priorities. We don't determine anymore where we live. God does. We don't determine anymore where we work. God does. We don't determine anymore what kind of car we drive. God does. He makes the decisions and comes before every one of those that we make. And we make those in light of our call to go and make disciples because someone went and made us a disciple. And so in the context of that, everything is on the line. We are willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ. And that's extreme, and that flies in the face of American Christianity. That is not what we are what we are taught to believe. But that is what he requires of us. Christ now determines everything. It's a paradigm shift. In verse 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Two things here. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? So we're going to build a building, right? We're going we're gonna to build a tower. You can think about the, the new apartments that are being built downtown. I was just down there last weekend um, at the Memorial Day celebration at, at Union Station, and there's a, there's a new apartment complex going up. Uh, light, what is it, Light 3? Is that right? Is that what it's called, Light 3? Three Light. That was close. We do everything backwards in Missouri. You ever notice that? It's not, it's not Highway 40, it's 40 Highway. You ever notice that? It's not Highway 7, it's 7 Highway. I don't know. Anyway, just something I think. You're lucky you're not caught inside my head, but um, where was I? Anyway, um, you know, when, you, when they go to build those buildings, they have to count the cost. They have to, they have to figure the cost of the land. They have to figure the price of the taxes that are going to have to be paid by the owners of the building. How much is the steel going to cost? How much is the glass going to cost? Uh, what's the labor going to cost? And we, we put all those things together, and we decide whether or not it's profitable for us to build a third apartment building in downtown Kansas City. And just like that, Jesus says, if you're going to build a tower, you've got to count the cost first. And if you're going to follow him, we have to count the cost. Are we, are we really willing to give up what Jesus demands that we give up? You've probably heard it, and I've said it before. If you're a, if, you know, at, the end of a, at the end of a service, if you're a, if you, you know, if you're a sinner, you believe Jesus died for you, pray this prayer, and, and, and everything will be peaches and cream. And, 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 and when we do that, sometimes we usurp that there's a cost that comes with it, that it's not just some emotional decision, that it's not just some, I walk down the aisle. There's more to it than that. Yes, salvation is free, and yes, God wants what's best for us, but it's in light of crucifying ourselves to follow him. And so it's more than just a prayer. It's a lordship. It's a following that has to come with it. There's a cost, and it requires everything. Author John Stott said this, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him, 
without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Let me read that again. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved in their Christianity, but enough to be respectable, but not enough to be, what is it? Uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. There is a cost to following Jesus. It is not a soft cushion to land on at the end of the day so that we feel good about the fact that we somehow follow God and went to church on Sunday. That's not what it's about. It's about giving everything. It's about being a disciple and following. There's a... There's a... A cost sometimes not just with monetary. Sometimes it's a pride cost. Sometimes it's a, I got to swallow it so that I can follow Jesus. I've got to do what I've got to do to be discipled. And, I, and I'm reminded uh, of a family um, who's, who's here today and has surrendered to a discipleship process, who has entered into a discipleship process with one of our, one of our leaders here in the church to say, I, I want to live differently. I want to follow differently. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do this now. I don't want to live in this place. I want to live in this place. And until we come into those intersections in our life where we're willing to test God's faithfulness with our faith and allow him to perform a miracle in our lives, we'll continue to hit walls. We'll continue to bang our head against a wall until finally we surrender and we say, I've got to submit myself to some discipleship. I've got to, I've got to submit myself to growth because that's what Christ demands. Because that's what he says we have to do to consider the cost to build a building. The second thing he talks about is warriors fighting a battle. In verse 31, he says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? Those are big numbers. If I have 10,000 men and I'm going to take on 20,000 men, I probably should consider what my weapons are and what their weapons are. Right, Kurt? I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to win a war, right, we have colleges that are, that are upper military, like Fort Leavenworth has a, has a war college. I've got a couple of friends that have been through it. And, and they go to this war college to learn how to wage war. And one of the things you have to learn to do is, are we, are we enough of an army to take on that army? Or, he says, if he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and can't shoot at him. You just add that piece in there. And we'll ask for terms of peace. If I know I'm going into battle and I'm going to give my ever-loving butt kicked... I'm going to send somebody to say, okay, what do we need to do so that we don't have to fight? That's pretty much me in life anyway. I'm one of those that says, if, if, if he, who, he who fights and runs away can run away another day. That's just me. 
All right, some of you like to fight. Brian would stand here and say, I ain't backing down to nobody. I'm saying I'm going that way. I ain't fighting nobody for no reason. I just have to outrun you, that's all. Um, right? And so we have to count that cost. When you're going into battle, we have to look at that. There's some great stories in the Bible. If you want to read a great story about a battle, go read the story of Gideon, who took 300 men up against thousands and won because God was on his side. We have to count the cost of going to war. The New Testament, Testament talks about this constantly. It's not, and it's not a war with guns and bombs. It's fought with the gospel, prayer, and love, and it's not against anybody else. My war is not with Joe. My war is not with Mike. My war is not with Donna. My war is not with Debbie. My war is against the principalities and the powers of this dark world. It's a spiritual battle. We're not fighting a battle and I don't care what you think about this, we're not fighting a battle with Target Corporation who's targeting our children. We're fighting a spiritual battle. It is all about the spiritual realm. It's not man versus man. It's good versus evil. And the stakes could not be higher because the stakes are our children. Because the stakes are higher because the stakes are spiritual. The only way, the only way we will win, it's, it's not a culture war either. People use that term, it's a culture war. No, it's not. It's a battle, an epic battle of good versus evil. And here's the great news. Guess who wins in the end? Jesus does. It's not against flesh and blood. We are fighting Satan himself for the soul of our world, for the soul of our families, for the souls of our children, for the soul, for our, for our holiness, for, the, for, for, our, for our own. Those are the battles that we're fighting. And so we have to take stock, because when I say that, some of you are like, well, I don't care about that. Well, you should. What do I care if Target wants to put stuff out that celebrates this, that, or the other? You should care, because they've stopped putting the almighty dollar first, and they've started putting social change first. And that's a, that's a pivot point. John Cooper, the lead singer of Skillet, said it's cataclysmic. When corporations stop saying it's all about the mighty dollar and it's all about what I want to say and influence, we have crossed a line because the almighty dollar has always come first. Always. We are in a war for the soul of our nation and the soul of our children. And we have to get out of this peacetime mindset and into a wartime mindset, because it's going to continue to get worse. And we'll continue to be picked off if we have not set and said, I am willing to take up my cross and die to everything in order to follow Jesus. You may remember uh, the Queen Mary who had her voyage. I think I've got a picture of the, old, of the Queen Mary uh, who had her voyage, maiden voyage back in 1936. It was a beautiful ship. It was designed to, to cross the ocean uh, was made for people with lots of money. I probably would have never ridden on it unless I was, you know, man in the boiler or something. Uh, it had beautiful Art Deco. It had 50 types of wood. It had, in this time in 1936, count them, two indoor swimming pools on the Queen Mary. It had a music studio, libraries, paddle tennis courts, phone service, dining. In fact, their dining spanned three decks of dining. Have you all been on a cruise? How many of you have been on a cruise? They're kind of overwhelming, aren't they? 
But can you imagine like in 1936 that like this was what this ship looked like? Um, the, the, the dining hall had a motorized crystal model of the ship that tracked the progress of the ship across the ocean, made of crystal. Well, you might know that a couple of years later, World War II hit, and the Queen Mary was switched over to be a carrier for troops across the ocean. They removed all of the stuff, and they told, they told the guys not to swim in the swimming pools or to play in the play in the play areas where they had darts and pool tables and all this stuff. And from when you read about it, it's kind of interesting because that didn't work at all. Because if you're on a ship going across the ocean, like you're not going to play darts, right? I mean, what else are we going to do? You know, and so um, it was this really, it's really an entertaining story if you, if you kind of go read about it, but pretty phenomenal that they took this, you know, millions of dollars ship back in that time and converted it to a troop court carrier. And, and I think that's a really great picture of our lives. You, you take this, this life that we think we are owed or this life that we think we have earned or this life that somehow we think is ours because we live in America, and Jesus says, no, take that life and just, just, just forget about it. Just forget it. And I want you to become a wartime ship. I want you to become that for me because that's what I've required of you. So it requires this supreme love and this superior loyalty, but it also requires a total loss for us. I'm in a class right now that I absolutely hate, um, and it's, it's finance and accounting. It's hideous. My mind does not work like that. I'm, I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm old. I get what I am now and what I'm not, and what I am not is an accountant. Um, when you start talking numbers, like Erin's an engineer, and if she even began to talk to me about her job, I would just, I would fall asleep. Like, I don't understand what you're telling me. I don't get it. Um, I'm a creative, and so my mind's all over the place, which, you know, if you know me, you, it's not real hard to pick up on. Um, and so this, this, this thing has just baffled me, like, completely. But one of the things I have picked up on is, as a business, you don't want to have a total loss, um, right? Got it. Pass that quiz. It's probably the only quiz I passed. But I will tell you that the $9 billion that Target lost in its first week after deciding to be stupid hurt them. It's not a total loss, but that's a loss. That hurts. Even a, even a corporation like Target, that's like me losing 10 bucks out of my checking account. That's like a total loss. Like, what do I do? I can't survive without that 10 bucks, right? We know that a total loss is, is in our thinking, right? It's a bad thing. We don't think of a total loss ever in a positive context. We, just, we don't think in those terms. But Jesus thinks in those terms. In fact, it's the only terms that he thinks in is total loss because he lost his life and gave up everything for us. And so he requires nothing less of us this total loss, verse 33 says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up what? Cannot be my disciples. Those of you who don't give up everything cannot be my disciples. To give up when called to it, relationships or friendships or possessions or estates, which is jumping back an explanation of Luke 14, 26 that we give up everything. If we don't, he cannot be my disciple. He goes on and says, he is, in fact one, uh, he is not in fact one and is not worthy to be called one. I think that what we hear and maybe what we like to hear preached in churches is that it tickles our ears sometimes. 
We preach this prosperity gospel, or we preach this everything's going to be okay gospel, or we preach this thing to people out there that we think is somehow going to be attractive to them. But I think of Jesus, as we talked about last week, standing and preaching and saying, if you want to follow me, and this is his invitation to come, which is, again, counter even what I've been taught as a pastor. You don't say this kind of stuff to people because it's not attractive, because people don't want to hear it. But Jesus says, you got to die. You want to come follow me? That's it. Well, that's not attractional. Most of us wouldn't sit here and say, well, yeah, that's really something I desire. I'd really like to die. But that's what Jesus says. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But we are warriors. And we fight this war with sin and culture. We're called to fight a war against our enemy. And I just, I just think the more... I, I read, and the more I look to God, and the more I listen to the Holy Spirit, I just, I believe with all my heart that this American Christianity is a sham. It just is. It's not what the gospel says. Almost everywhere else on the planet, persecution for faith is the backdrop. And in every single one of those places, the church and Christianity is growing. Because the cost could very well likely be our lives. And when that's the cost, we count that cost before we begin to follow. And everybody who follows counts that cost before they begin to follow. And it's a completely opposite mindset of what we hear. Because really honestly, for most of us in our lives, and I can sit here and say this all day long, for most of us, we won't really have to give up much. I mean, Jesus says, you know, give me 10%. Give me 10% of your money. And we're like, all right, whatever. But Jesus turns that in the New Testament and says, no, 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 I want you to be a cheerful giver. He takes the 10% out of the equation, not that we shouldn't put it at that number, because I, 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 but, I, but I think that's a minimum number, right? What if we are giving 20% or 30% or 40% or 50% of our income to the cause of Christ? What if that's what he's calling us to when he says, like Brian and Sarah said, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, that we're blessed to be a blessing. And we begin to look at things that way and look at things differently. Are we willing to count the cost? Are we willing to give up the things that are important to us? Are we willing to cash out a 401k? Because we're sitting at a gala for human trafficking children. And God whispers in our ear and says, hey, you know that $73,233 401k you got sitting over there? I want you to give it to me. You want me to do what? I want you to write a check. Wait a minute. I was going to bid on that Mahomes jersey later, and if I do that, I can't. <laughs> I've seen this. I was, I've watched this. Right? We're all, about, we're all about bidding and supporting something as long as we get something back. But what if Jesus says, cash it out? Are we willing to do that? Go. Some of you will get this. Carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Funny but true. Funny but true. And I have to look in my own, <laughs> I have to look at my own life and go... Man, I don't know. I don't know. Would I really do that? Hebrews 10.32, I think, puts most of this in light. 
And this was in a time when it wasn't popular to be a Christian. And we're headed there if you haven't noticed. Hebrews 10.32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. And listen, verse 34, you suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. I know some of you. And some of you are going, ain't nobody taking my property. I will bust out my guns and I will bust a cap in you before I give up my property. You suffered along with those in prison. What did they do? Listen, but this is nuts. I just, just hits me so hard. And joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. How many of us would joyfully accept the confiscation of our property because that's what it costs us to follow Jesus? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. This ain't it. Your dream home is not your dream home. My dream car is not my dream car. That 2023 Yamaha jet boat, 24 foot, loaded with leather and GPS and parked at a dock down at Table Rock Lake where I can go and just sit on my boat all day long, that is not my dream. Jesus says, Chris, give up that dream for me if I tell you to. It's not that you necessarily will have to. It's that we're willing to. Do you understand? It's not that it's, it's going to happen. But if it does happen, and Jesus says, give it up. I'm sending you to Africa. You're going to do what? Yeah, but I've got like... I've got my dream like place down at the lake and I've got my boat and I've got my truck and I've got my stuff, right? And I worked hard for that. Jesus says, no, you didn't. You worked hard so you could expand my kingdom. We have it backwards, folks. We think that we're going to move towards retirement and retirement's like it, man. When, when I retire, I'm done. I don't know how many times I've heard this. When I retire, I'm done. I'm not working anymore. We're just going to go on vacation for a living. No, we work hard and retire so we can give our lives to the Baptist builders or we can give our lives to Samaritan's Purse or we can give our lives to serve other people. Now I've got time. I didn't have time before because I was working 17 jobs, but now I've got time. This is awesome. I can serve Jesus. That's my job now. And then when I'm done with that job, I can go hang out at the lake. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not standing here saying that there's a thing wrong with having things. Listen, I have a boat. I love my boat. Some of you had motorcycles. We've all got toys, right? We have our thing, or we have our dream toy that we're working towards. And that's fine. Please hear me. I am not standing here saying that it is not okay to have things, or it's not okay to have money, but it's a perspective shift, and it's a paradigm shift that shifts American Christianity on its head and says, this is what I'm expecting, not this. And if you don't count the cost, when it comes to that place, you're just going to say, well, I'm good. I'm not following Jesus anymore. It just costs too much. 
I'm not carrying a cross down the streets of Kansas City because they're going to crucify me because I won't surrender and I won't give up Jesus. I'm not doing that. That's just, that just costs too much. That is what is demanded of us. This is the great part. This is the great part. Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. And these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Listen, read that. They, on, they, they, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on this earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. I don't want a house. What I can have a country? I get heaven. I get Jesus. I get more than this. And that's my perspective. They're looking for a country of their own. In verse 15, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. How, many, how often did we read about the Israelites? If you've been following in our Bible plan, how many times did the Israelites, stupid boneheads, just continue to say, well, I've got God, but I don't want to go back to Egypt because they had better food. Are you, are you dumb? Like you've got God, you have this like pillar of fire before you at night and this cloud during the day that you follow. God is literally in presence with you and you want to go back to Egypt. And it's so true in our own lives and in our culture. Why would we follow God when we can have all this? Why would we do what Jesus wants? Oh, I can do all this. I can have all this. You can have all that, and you can have an eternity in hell. And that's the bottom line. We either follow Jesus or we don't. Because there's a better country. There's a better place. There's better stuff. In verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for you. That's freaking awesome. That should make our hearts leap. I mean, man, I get like all this prepared for me. And all I have to do is have this eternal perspective. These people were living by faith when they died. That's their legacy. They didn't get their stuff. They're not from here, but they're promised their own country. In verse, they didn't look back in verse 15. I think of Cortez, when he reached the shores of Mexico and he burned the ships, he said, we're not going back. We're, burning, we're not even going to have the opportunity to go back. I'm burning the ships. We're staying. This is where we're at now. This perspective is everything, that heaven is our home and it's eternal and that's what the world needs to see, that it's not about me or my stuff. It's about others. It's about loving God and loving other people. That stuff doesn't satisfy. That we don't want stuff, we want Jesus. And if we get blessed with stuff along the way, then we'll give a hallelujah. But it's not about that. That's not what we're here for. I want us to be satisfied. Of course I do. But we've grown to believe that stuff satisfies, and it just doesn't. We've grown to believe that God wants to make us comfortable, and that's not the call and that's the call that's based on the word of God to repent and turn to know real satisfaction that comes only from Jesus and the blood of Christ. Listen, Moses had it all in Egypt. He was, a, he, was a, he was a son of Pharaoh as an adopted son. He knew that he had a great reward ahead. He knew what he had. And God pushed him out. 
American Christianity says it's a sacrifice to follow Jesus, and that just couldn't be further from the truth. Do we want a greater reward or a lesser one? Do we want chaos or peace? Do we want contentment? He is our reward. He is supremely loving. He's called us to that great reward. Why hate our father and our mother and our brother and our sister and and our children and our wives and our stuff? Because there's a love that's superior to that. Why be supremely loyal? Why not just love? Why, why, ne- why does he never leave us or forsake us? God never gave up on Israel, and he never gives up on us. And then Jesus sacrificed the ultimate supreme loss. Jesus in Luke 14 is headed in Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross to lose everything for us, to become our reward. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. From creation to the fall to the covenants to redemption to his return, that's the call. C.S. Lewis said, said this, we're, we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Those are powerful words. And he says these words, we are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. Our stuff and our plans and our desires and our security and our mud pies or a holiday at sea. How about you? But I've been on the water. I'll take a holiday at sea. That sounds pretty good to me. And that's the call of Hebrews 12, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to pursue him, to say yes to him and no to the stuff on his terms. Imagine what our lives would look like if we were willing to do that. If the rubber really hit the road and we said we were willing to do that. Let's pray. God, there is power in your word. There is so much richness in these verses, Lord, beyond even what we've unpacked. God, I pray that we would take these things from Luke 14 that we've looked at over the last few weeks and months and continue to just unpack them, to continue to read through them, to to make these verses our life verses because our life is your life. Our call is your call. And so to step away from all of what we think we know into the unknown of that relationship with you, of a real relationship with you, God, that's what you've called us to as a people. That's what you've called us to as humanity. Lord, may we have that burden in our heart to see that in others' lives. And God, may we be willing to give up everything for the sake of your call. There's power in the blood. Wonder-working power. God, we praise you. And Lord, if there's anyone here who needs to take a next step, God, I pray that right now that they would do that. Lord, if they need to receive you, if they need to follow you in baptism, if they need to commit their hearts to you fully, or if they need to a renewal of a relationship or a redirect of their children or their finances, God, I pray that right now that you would speak that to their hearts. And they would seek you out in those things. 
God, we love you. You're an amazing and powerful God, and you love us so much, God, that you died for us, and that's powerful. We just, we praise you that we are wonderfully and carefully made. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.